Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Okay, so today we have a double header for our listeners. First up, we'll have a conversation with Karina Longworth, who is the author of Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. After that, we will talk to Nikki Darling, who's the author of the what I thought was nostalgic, and she corrected me in the interview, Fade Into You, which is a novel about 1990s L.A. and a young girl's struggle to realize her womanhood. Both L.A. books. Yes, both about women in L.A. Correct. Let's find other things that they have in common. Um, sex. Sex. This is a great beginning. Los Angeles, <laughs> sex, sex, womanhood. <laughs> That is the show that we have coming up for you today. Get ready. (laughs) Get ready. Um, With Karina Longworth, I wanted to say that I I learned a lot about Hollywood. Yeah, definitely. And And this is, we should say for listeners, this is classic Hollywood, right? So Nikki's novel is set in 90s L.A., kind of the outskirts of L.A., actually. Um, And this is set in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, which is so-called classical era. Right. And we're going to go in chronological order. Mm -hmm. And one of the fun things about Karina's book or the thing that I really loved about it is that it really feels like gossiping. Oh, yeah. But you learn a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she uses kind of the sexual profligacy of Howard Hughes to actually tell us a story about the women who kind of passed through him, who interacted (laughs) with him uh, during the course of their careers in order to actually tell us things about actresses that we don't really know about. Like there's a lot of interesting kind of starlet history that I loved getting into and also kind of seeing the the way that the studio system developed and then kind of concretized as like a PR machine um, during the period. And Nikki Darling is maybe a bit more <laughs> familiar to those of us since it's set in the 90s, um, which was our childhoods, and, you know, deals with... It's more of a dr- punk, queer yeah, history yeah, yeah, yeah. of Los Angeles. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, and talking to her was so much fun. Oh, absolutely. And I should also say that Medea and I are both joined by our co-host, LARB editor-at-large, Kate Wolf, on both of these interviews. Okay, so let's get to that. Let's do it. We're excited to have Karina Longworth in the studio. Karina is the creator, writer, and host of You Must Remember This, a podcast in which she chronicles the secret and forgotten histories of Hollywood in the era of Howard Hughes and the Golden Age. Formerly a film editor for LA Weekly and critic for The Village Voice, as well as author of several books, including Hollywood Frame by Frame and Meryl Streep, Anatomy of an Actor, Karina joins us today to talk about her latest book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, which tells an expansive version of the capsule histories of Hollywood's Golden Age when sex, success, and secrets were the currency of the day. Welcome to the show, Karina. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'm wondering if you can just frame for our listeners the kind of golden era of Hollywood that this book chronicles, right? What is the golden age, and who was Howard Hughes as a unique Hollywood visionary and filmmaker? Well, the book covers a period that historians call the classical Hollywood era, which is more or less the last couple years of the silent era, starting around 1926 Mm -hmm. and running through basically the end of the 1950s. And the reason why that is an interesting era is because this is when the studio system kind of 
codifies all of its ways of making movies, marketing them, distributing them, and then the studio system kind of falls apart due to the collapse of vertical integration and the rise of television and the rise of 60s youth culture and stuff like that. So Howard Hughes is an interesting character because he arrives in Hollywood in 1925, Mm -hmm. and then he kind of disappears into his own world starting around 1958. So that's pretty much exactly that classical Hollywood era. And then within that era, he manages to like get his hands into a lot of the sort of flashpoint evolutions that Hollywood is going through. You can tell the story of the transition from silent film to sound film through his movie Hell's Angels, which began as a silent film and became a sound film. Mm -hmm. You can talk about the pre-code era with him and the different evolutions of film censorship from the early 1930s all the way through the 1950s because he was a consistent antagonist of Hollywood censors. You can talk about vertical integration because when he bought RKO Studios, he became the first studio head to accept this deal that the government was offering about the terms in which the studios would have to divorce their production businesses from their movie theaters. Mm. And... You can talk about the collapse of the studio system through him because he ran RKO Studios into the ground. (laughs) (laughs) One of his many innovations was the way that he marketed not only films, but the way that he used publicity, not just in terms of like standard movie poster marketing, but in terms of like selling romance and then also sex to audiences in the U.S. More sex than romance. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Can you talk about that? Like, was this a particular moment in American culture that was ripe for that? Or did Hughes kind of invent that type of desire. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, his career and his work spans many moments. And he kind of makes his first splash in that way that you're talking about with Hell's Angels Mm -hmm. and with the actress Jean Harlow, who was unknown. And then he cast her in this lead role. And he made a lot of the movie itself, but definitely the marketing of the movie about her body and this idea of her as the blonde bombshell. She was the first blonde bombshell. She was the first star whose image was based really heavily on her having this combination of white blonde hair, artificial white blonde hair, Mm -hmm. and like a naturally curvaceous body. And he really exploited that in the marketing for the film. And this is also not necessarily the body or the image that she wanted, Right? No, There's well, I mean, like, she couldn't. Pushback. It is the body she was born with, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, I'm sorry, the image, uh, yeah. not the body, the image that <laughs> yeah. she wanted, right? Yeah. She did not consider herself somebody who was naturally sexual. And if she had been choosing the way that her persona was marketed, she wouldn't have chosen a vixen or a sexually aggressive woman because she didn't feel like that's what she was. But that is what people thought that she was when they saw her. Mm. And Hughes really decided to take advantage of what her appeal was to, you know, particularly men. So Hughes sounds like he was a convenient fulcrum to talk about, you know, this classic age of Hollywood. But I'm wondering what else about his story and his kind of going through women and using women in a lot of ways. What drew you to that the seduction aspect? Because it's not just about, you know, his role in Hollywood. It's also about kind of his, not destruction of women, but certainly his voracious appetite, exploitation, that's it, yeah, of women. Well, I mean, I honestly, like, I didn't really think of it, it's not a biography of Howard Hughes, and I never really thought of it as being a book about him as much as he was an excuse to talk about these actresses. So actually, I would like to take just one step back from where we are right now and situate the listener into the Hollywood that you enter with the book. So... You begin really at a point where Hollywood is not quite really a thing yet. (laughs) Most of the people who are making movies are on the East Coast, and they start traveling over. Would you mind just setting the scene a little bit in terms of 
where we begin. You did a very thorough job taking us like over to the end of the studio era. But where do we begin and what does it look like in Hollywood at that moment? Well, I mean, the book begins in 1925. Do you want me to talk about that or do you want me to talk about like Rupert Hughes and... I just want to set the scene of what Hollywood is like. Who's there? What do people want when they come? You describe these parties. What's going on in Hollywood at that time? Well, the book begins at a party at the Ambassador Hotel in 1925. That was It was basically a business dinner thrown by MGM. And we see it through the eyes of this woman, Frederica Sager Moss, who was a screenwriter in her early 20s. And, you know, she was there with her bosses. And then after dinner, like, they bring out the dessert. And then they also basically bring out a bunch of female sex workers who are, like, the party favors for the male MGM employees. And she's one of the few female MGM employees at the party. And I chose that scene because this took place at the Ambassador Hotel in 1925. And in 1925, Howard Hughes chose to move with his new wife from Houston to Los Angeles. And he chose the Ambassador Hotel as the place to move to. And the Ambassador was a place where it was like a playground for young, new Hollywood, you know, people who, a lot of people who had just moved to town and were looking to get noticed, people who, like, hadn't built their own mansion yet, who needed a place where they could sort of show off their money or their style or whatever it is that they wanted to show off. And what state is the movie industry at that point? Well, in 1925, I mean, the studio system is basically codified. You're just a couple years before they begin the transition to sound. So by 1925, I mean, that's really the peak of the silent era. The studios have perfected making silent films, and they don't really know it yet. But within about a year, a year and a half, the entire industry is going to be forced to change because of the coming of sound. What kind of vehicle was used to talk about a larger story of Hollywood, something that you see maybe as a structural aspect of how women existed in Hollywood? You know, why him out of so many people who are possibly behaving a similar way? Just because he was the most powerful? or He definitely wasn't the most powerful, but he's maybe the most idiosyncratic because he was entirely independent his entire career. He never worked for a studio where somebody else was his boss. He always did things exactly the way he wanted to do it. And it was this combination of him emulating the powerful men that he saw who were older than him and established when he came to town and also deliberately setting out to break Hollywood's rules. I mean, that's not really the stuff that drew me to writing about him, but that stuff is interesting. It's really just very simple that, like, writing about him would allow me to write about a lot of actresses that I was interested in. Now, to talk about some of those actresses, what strikes me as interesting is this kind of double-edged sword between incredible opportunity and then also incredible opportunity to be exploited, right? On the one hand, women in that industry at that time could potentially make a very good deal of money, right? Like, a lot of money and be very financially independent, At the same time, they were often at the mercy of people like Hughes and other men who controlled the studio systems. Is there a particular type of kind of pioneering woman that like made her way into that studio system? Or like where did these women come from, in other words? I don't think that there's a uniform story or anything. And in fact, like one of the things that I think is interesting about the book is that of the 10 main characters, they all kind of come from different places and have different stories. I'm also wondering, to a certain extent, that it seems like this is the beginning of the possibility of a superstar, like a big screen name, a bankable name that could have many, many different movies and a whole career. It also seems to coincide, interestingly, and I wonder to what extent Hughes's kind of knack for publicity and managing media and the kind of public 
persona of the stars becomes an era in which we don't just want to see them on screen, but we want to really know something about their lives. There's a lot of interest in who they're dating, who they're having an affair with, who they're marrying, divorcing from. I mean, is that a phenomenon that's uniquely emergent at this particular time in terms of breaking that public-private line? No. I mean, I think from the very beginning of cinema, or at least the beginning of the point where there was a fan magazine media and there was press about the movies, there was always this sort of parallel narrative going on. Okay. So, I mean, you can date that to the mid-teens, let's okay. say. Maybe even earlier than that. I mean, as soon as there were stars that were being billed by their name, as opposed to just like the biograph girl, which is what movie stars were basically billed by nicknames before they were billed by their actual names. Okay. As soon as they were billed by their actual names, there was this like sense of the studios finding it useful to broadcast ideas about them in separate media than movies, and then audiences really eating that up and really being mm. hungry for those parallel narratives. I write a little bit in the book about this serial called The Perils of Pauline, which is, I think, 1912, somewhere okay. around there. Okay. And the producers of that movie disseminated in newspapers and magazines like a completely fake story about the actress <laughs> who starred in these movies, but nobody cared that these stories were fake. Oh, so, so they were eating it up just as fiction as much as yeah. the movies. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, that's always been part of Hollywood. I think what is interesting about uses the ways in which he actually is, you know, second generation in that way. Like he absorbed those kinds of things as a child. And that was part of his experience of being a movie lover, you know. And so then his whole thing about like coming to Hollywood was that he felt like he could do this thing that he loved better than the way it was being done. And so he felt that way about filmmaking and he felt that way about marketing as well. Now, in terms of the kind of darker side of the industry at that time, is this the beginning of the kind of, I guess you would say, like nefarious, like casting couch culture of Hollywood? Or had that existed before? Like, I'm wondering if, in a sense, is Hughes and the way that sexuality worked both in terms of how he cast roles in movies, though it seems like that happened more later, where there was like an explicit quid pro quo for that. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely existed prior to Howard Hughes. I mean, you can, there's this movie that I read about in the book that was directed and written by his uncle Rupert called Souls for Sale, which I think is 1922. And in that film, there's a scene where like a young actress goes into a producer's office and basically offers him sex. Mm. And Rupert Hughes's whole point of making that movie was that he felt this was during the time when things like the Fatty Arbuckle scandal were happening. So Hollywood had a really negative image in the national media. And he wanted to make a movie that he was purporting was basically a documentary of what Hollywood was really like and like all the good upstanding people who were really there. So he wrote this scene in which this actress tries to sell herself sexually to a producer and the producer's like, you silly girl, you don't need to do that. You only need to sell yourself to the public. We don't do that (laughs) here. We don't do that. But it's already obviously in the culture and it's in the public imagination. Maybe you could talk about some of the actresses that Hughes intersected with because it's pretty stunning. They're really big names and incredible women. Yeah, I wanted to include in the book both the big major actresses that we still know today, but then also people whose names we've forgotten or maybe never even really knew. So his first, you know, movie star love is this actress, Billy Dove, who was a major silent star before she met Howard Hughes. And I think he pursued her in part because she was so famous. And then he takes over control of her career and coincidentally, her career kind of falls apart. And then he moves on from her to Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn, who is kind of seeing simultaneously throughout the 30s, Betty Davis, Ava Gardner, 
And then his sort of second wife of record is an actress named Jean Peters, who I don't think people are very familiar with today, but she was at 20th Century Fox at the same time as Marilyn Monroe, and she starred with Marilyn Monroe in a film called Niagara, which was one of Marilyn's first major, like, starring hits. Those are some of the more major people. And is there one of those actresses that you really feel a connection with or story really drew you to her? The way that my work kind of works is that I I never really have favorites. It's mm-hmm. just I have to kind of put my heart with whoever I'm writing about at the moment. Yeah. I would say that, you know, an actress that I had always been really interested in who's in the book is Jane Russell. And it was exciting mm-hmm. to be able to learn more about her and to kind of be able to take apart how her stardom worked. I'd love for you to talk about the way you work because something that's so impressive about the book is that it's so associative and it, you follow connections often. And I've really enjoyed that about your podcast as well. But it seems very challenging not to, you know, here the nucleus is huge, but there's so many tentacles. And so how do you organize a book like this? How do you even start researching? I mean, how do you compile this kind of history? And what kind of model do you refer to in writing these types of histories that don't follow a straight story necessarily? That's a couple of different questions. I'll try to answer them all. Well, when I wrote the proposal for the book, I knew which actresses I mostly wanted to focus on. And so then it just became a process of trying to learn everything I could about them and at the same time learn everything I could about how Howard Hughes was involved with them and how they intersected with his movie-making practice and his personal life. And so I did an an enormous amount of archival research at places like the Academy Library in Beverly Hills. And I I went to Austin, Texas and Las Vegas to look at various Hughes-related files. I went to Boston where I looked at Betty Davis's scrapbooks. And I basically spent about two years collecting notes and bits of writing in a giant document that was chronologically ordered. And so, you know, it basically starts around 1905 when Howard Hughes is born, and it ended sometime in the late 80s. And then every event, every anecdote, every quote from a book, I just arranged on that document chronologically. And from there, I started breaking down, you know, where it seemed like the stories were that could fill chapters and then I just started writing, and it was pretty close to, like, the end of—I turned in the first draft in September 2017, and it was pretty close to the end of that that I was still kind of moving things around a little bit, especially in the sections of the book that deal with the late 1940s and the 1950s when things start to get really complicated because there's a lot going on in Hughes's life, and there's a lot of women that he's involved with, and there's a lot going on in their lives. And so you have, like, whole situations like the— Hollywood blacklist of suspected communists that you have to try to fit in there because Hughes is involved. Ida Lupino, who is one of the actresses that I talk about in the book, is involved. Like, there's just a lot going on. <laughs> when you're inside of an archive, I mean, those are deeply weird places, right? They have be. they have this kind of like, it always strikes me when I'm in an archive, this like sense of intimacy that you have with it because you're dealing with their effects and you feel like almost like you can kind of touch that actual person. But I'm wondering, are there particular kinds of objects in the archive, like diaries or photographs that you always go to or particularly enjoy looking at in terms of getting at the stories that you're interested in? I mean, definitely if you can find unpublished diaries or memoirs, Mm. those are really valuable. I, I made use of a lot of those kinds of things in this book. 
in terms of Howard Hughes in Austin, Texas, like there are telegrams from the 1930s through which you can kind of reconstruct various business dealings and things like that. There's also, I mean, something that was super useful in that same archive that I would definitely look for in another project were depositions. So it's basically like transcripts of people being interviewed in court, but it's like finding an unpublished interview. Right. And you at least know that if they didn't want to perjure themselves, it has to actually be true. (laughs) Yeah. That's actually something that I wanted to ask you, which is one of the things that you're dealing with in this book is myth-making and a person who really cultivates various stories about themselves, various stories about the people around him, and how you tease that from reality and also manage to present the making of that story and what that story is according to him. How do you begin to tease these things apart? Well, I know this isn't really a satisfying answer, but I guess I just like come from the sort of post-structuralist school where I don't know that truth is possible. Mm -hmm. So I'm never really too concerned with being like, well, I've figured it out. This is absolutely the truth. And I think especially when it comes to Hollywood, you can never know like with 100%, especially when it comes to stories in which almost everybody's dead as well. You cannot know with 100% certainty exactly what happened. So for me, the exciting thing is to try to figure out what is definitely a lie when you can, and then try to figure out why those lies were told and like deconstruct the process of that. That's so interesting. Can you give us an example of a lie that you you were like, oh, I got it. This is definitely a lie. I'm going to move from here. Well, okay. So Howard Hughes's second film that he directed, The Outlaw, in a lot of publicity that he released and also writing about the movie in newspapers and magazines, there was this idea that the censorship board had banned the film and had refused to give it the seal of approval that allowed movies to be shown in movie theaters because it was too sexy. But that absolutely wasn't true. And I knew it wasn't true because in the Academy's files, they have all of the files from the censorship board, Mm. and I saw the seal of approval. And so I had to try to figure out why Howard Hughes wanted people to think that and sort of how that lie became reality. Speaking of censorship, one of the things that's interesting about the book is that you, at least one of the claims in there, is that this is an era in which we get the idea of the public image for the sexualized woman, right, in a much more like kind of modern way. At the same time, then, what follows shortly after that are the production codes. So can you explain how those kind of phenomenon were working in tandem in Hollywood in this period that you're describing, and also tell listeners a little bit like what the production codes were. So in the first couple of decades of Hollywood, there was no formalized censorship, but each state could basically decide what was acceptable to them and what wasn't. And what happened was that movies would have like a scene cut in Ohio that was allowed to show in Massachusetts and vice versa. Like in some movies, you could show a woman smoking. In some movies, you couldn't. In some movies, you could like talk about pregnancy. In other states, you couldn't. That was already a problem. And then in the early 1920s, there happened to be all of these scandals involving actors' personal lives, like the Fatty Arbuckle scandal, where mm-hmm. he was accused of basically raping a woman, and then she died like from injuries she suffered in the rape. We don't know if he raped her or not. After three trials, he was ultimately acquitted. But that kind of thing put a national picture of Hollywood as basically a cesspool. Mm. And so there became a national conversation about controlling Hollywood by the same people who had just enacted prohibition. So basically the Hollywood studios were afraid that their livelihood was going to be taken away, and then they had to at least make a gesture 
as to fixing this problem. So what they did was they hired Will H. Hayes, who had been the postmaster general under President Harding. They hired him to come to Hollywood and be the czar of film censorship, basically. And they chose him because they thought they could control him. And for a while, they could. But the Catholic groups and other groups over time continued to call for stronger censorship, if not the outright destruction of the movie industry. And so eventually, around 1930, this code was created of things that you could show in movies and things you couldn't show. And Hollywood didn't really figure out how to enforce that until 1934. So there is this period from about 1929 to 1934 that is often called the pre-code era, Mm. in which studios were finding that they could basically have box office hits by challenging, seeing how far they could push what was allowed on screen and what wasn't. And so you get a lot of movies about Mm quasi-prostitution. You get the rise of the gangster film during this time. Just a lot of sex and violence on screen. Sex in a way that we wouldn't even recognize as sex necessarily today. You know, there's no graphic nudity. There's no, like, actual sex scenes. But there's suggestion. And then there's just a lot of plots about women being forced to, like, do what they have to do, in quotes, Mm -hmm. and things like that. But in 1934, this code is really put into effect, and it changes movies instantly. And it stays into effect really until the early 1950s when some producers start to successfully challenge it. And Howard Hughes was one of those producers. Samuel Goldwyn was another one. Do the production codes in some ways have a protective function for the actresses themselves in terms of like limiting the ways that maybe their images can be exploited on screen? Yeah, maybe some actresses felt that way. Sure. I'm wondering in the book, you mentioned quite a number of like Louise Weber, Anita Luz, you know, Ida Lupino, women who are working in Hollywood in a role other than actress. Through your, you know, extensive research of Hollywood, are those women total anomalies? Or is it just that the role of women in Hollywood in modes other than actresses is really underappreciated, underacknowledged? Well, in the silent era, it was much more common for women to write and direct films than it became later. And I mean, I really tried to figure out like if there was a simple explanation for that. And I think it's complicated. I think it does have something to do with the change in the industry in terms of it becomes more corporate. There's more money on the line during the Depression. There becomes this idea that like you can only trust like proven talents, and so it becomes harder for women to break in around the same time that some of these women who had successful careers, their careers are sort of waning. And so then it does become, from the 1930s on, it does become an anomaly for women to direct particularly. There is still female screenwriters, not as many as men, but there are female screenwriters through the entire history of Hollywood. But as far as directors from the 1930s, there's Dorothy Arzner, who's working in the 1930s and 40s, and then there's Ida Lupino in the 1950s, and that's pretty much it until the late 60s. So in terms of the changes that go on in Hollywood, I was curious about your relationship to contemporary Hollywood. You've spent so much time, so we should mention if we haven't yet, you have a podcast mm-hmm. called You Must Remember This. You've been doing that now for... Four and a half years. For four and a half years. And you dedicate that, of course as your books, to old Hollywood. But I know there's sort of a range of ways that some of the episodes are almost contemporary. I've done a couple from the 70s and 80s, but not really very many recently. Like the, I guess about a year ago, I did a series on Jane Fonda and Gene Seberg, which extended, thanks, (laughs) which extended into about the early 80s. Right. So I'm curious with your sort of knowledge and with your understanding of how Hollywood has worked and how it's changed, How are you seeing the contemporary moment in Hollywood? I mean, this is an obvious question for you, particularly because your book deals with sex and seduction 
Time's Up is happening as we speak sort of outside our door. Well, how do you think about these things? Well, I mean, it's definitely a revolutionary moment. I mean, this conversation was not happening at all until two years ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's completely, completely different. I mean, of course, as I was reading the book, thinking of Hughes, it's probably not a fair equivalency, but the person who comes to my mind is Harvey Weinstein Mm -hmm. as some kind of powerful man who seems to go through, who has, you know, when the list of women that had been affected by Weinstein came out, it was shocking. It's like, how did he, how did he even have time? How do these (laughs) men who are working full time have time to pursue so many different women in so many different ways? It's, I was shocked because I'm lazy. But so, I mean, as his story, did you think of Hughes? Are there other men that kind of brought to mind Hughes? Do you see it as a, just kind of like an old, just an old story that's repeated, you know, until now? I mean, I don't love to make like those parallels between specific contemporary people and specific people in the past. And certainly over the past year or so, a lot of people have asked me to basically say that Harvey Weinstein is just like X mogul of the past. And I don't like to do that for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, it cheapens the experience of these men's victims to say that one man is just like another man. And I also think that the studio system of this period that I write about in the book is so, so, so different than the studio system now or the studio system in the 90s when Harvey Weinstein was at the peak of his power. Can you explain what those differences are? I am interested in that. So during the studio system of the past, if you wanted to be an actor or an actress working in Hollywood, you were under contract to a studio. And that contract dictated, of course, your professional life, but also most aspects of your personal life as it could connect to your professional life. Mm. So you had very little freedom of choice in terms of your life. This Um, is where you could be dismissed and out of your contract if it was found out that you were homosexual, for example. Sure, absolutely. Um, Or any number of other personal infractions. Yeah, and because of the gray areas between personal and professional, it it allowed studios to do things like encourage people to marry certain people or to change the way they looked or to take away their agency in a lot of different ways. And the economics of the studio system were entirely dependent on being able to do that. That obviously didn't exist in the 1990s when there was an incentive for women to, for lack of a better word, shut up about what was happening to them at the hands of Harvey Weinstein. And I think a big change today, like the reason why people have started to come out and talk about people like Harvey and the things that they have experienced is because he specifically was not as powerful in 2017 as he was in 1997. Mm. People weren't afraid anymore of him. And you could say that about, I think, a lot of the men who have had sort of a downfall. But the studio system today, like, not only does it not rely on those types of contracts, but, I mean, it is corporatized in a completely different way in which a lot of the people who are making decisions about movies know nothing about movies and don't care. (laughs) Like, they're just corporate accountants. I wonder if that partly informs your interest in this, your personal interest in this earlier era of Hollywood film. I mean, there seems to be something that you also like about, I kept thinking while I was reading the book, that as much as this is like a history and kind of tracing all of these connections, you also have these interesting moments of kind of criticism where you talk about how great a particular film was, or, and you do this a lot on the podcast as well, where you say, you know, everybody says that, like we were talking before the show about Linda Darnell, that Mm -hmm. you're like, everybody says that she's kind of has no persona, she's not an interesting actor. Actress, she doesn't have much range. But when you're watching these films, you're actually like, hey, she really has something there. Like, she's actually quite an interesting actress. So what is it about these films that you find personally, like, really satisfying? 
I mean, that's a difficult question because you're talking about like 100 years of cinema, (laughs) you know, and so there's different things that I find interesting about different movies, you know. But I guess I do just find myself more fascinated with films of the past than films of today. I can't exactly say why. Because you like history. Yeah, I do. But I, it's also, I just, I don't know, I just never run out of old movies that I haven't seen. And there just always seems like there's an exciting new discovery to make. And I can't tell you how many times I've been like, I want to go to the Arclight and see a movie this weekend. And there's just nothing I want to see. Mm. Yeah. What was the last film that you saw at the Arclight and you're like, okay, this sounds good. I haven't been in LA much recently, okay. but I saw two movies in, at like a mall multiplex in rural Massachusetts this weekend. <laughs> I and saw Widows and Creed 2. What did you think? I thought Widows was great. I really, really liked it. And I thought Creed 2 was fine. I like was not really with it for maybe the first 40 minutes, but then when it kind of became a movie about like petulant little boys who sort of want to kill their fathers, <laughs> I thought it was much more interesting. <laughs> Well, on that note. (laughs) Well, and there. We've been speaking with Karina Longworth, author of Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Karina Longworth, author of Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. We now turn to our conversation with Nikki Darling, author of Fade Into You. We're excited to have Nikki Darling in the studio with us today. Nikki is a music critic and writer whose work has appeared in the LA Times, LA Weekly, and KCET's Artbound. She joins us today to talk about her debut novel, Fade Into You, published in November by the Feminist Press. The novel follows protagonist Nikki Darling as she makes her way through the emotional, hormonal, and narcotic fog of a public arts high school in 90s Los Angeles. As Nikki tries to find a place for herself, cutting class, falling in love, and getting high, she confronts the backdrop of anxiety and the looming threat of violence, particular to female coming of age in the 90s and, unfortunately, today. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Okay, so the obvious question, <laughs> given that the protagonist is named after you, yeah. is this novel something of a memoir? No, it is not a memoir. It is um, written in the style of new narrative, which I am um, also in a PhD program at USC, the Literature and Creative Writing Program there, and my dissertation is centered around the genre new narrative. Mm. And so I I tend to read a lot of authors that make new narrative decisions, one of which is uh, using the name of the author as a protagonist, Michelle T., Dodie Bellamy. Mm, Um, I'm blanking because I'm being interviewed, but uh, (laughs) writers like that do that. And I've spoken to some of these writers, and one of the reasons I've heard is that in terms of like storytelling, it gives you, the author, an opportunity to blur the line between reality and fiction for the reader so that they might feel more fully absorbed into the narrative. I made that decision because I felt like what I was writing about, the subject matter, girlhood and trauma were things that I could not write about from a third person perspective Mm. and I could not write about from the perspective of another name and have the most sort of compelling impact with the reader that I was hoping for. I really wanted the reader to get as close to it as possible and I figured that the way to do that was to use my own name. But that being said, all of the things in the novel are situations that would not have been unusual in my actual high school experience. So I used 
places and other people's names. Like some of the characters are the names of really good friends that I just switched the first name and the last name. <laughs> so like there's like two characters who have the first name of one character. And so, I mean, I'm not going to, but um, <laughs> so for instance, the character of Dan is one character, but the actual character himself is based on four specific boys from my high school. Ah, uh, I see. Um, the physical characteristic of the character, his physicality is based on this one kid I went to high school where just every girl in my high school just like really like glommed on. I mean, he was just like a really beautiful young man. And so I wanted a character to have a sort of like anti-heroic sort of tragic kind of look about him. The mm. sort of look that, you know, girls by Bop and teen and all those magazines like looking for a James Dean feeling looking guy but his personality is not what that actual kid was like at all that kid was very sweet and kind and had a girlfriend all through high school and <laughs> Dan but, is not <laughs> Dan yeah so that's just an example of how I built different characters from different parts of different people the personality of that kid is based on those four boys like different things that those boys at different times did that stuck in my mind I remember when this one kid I'm not going to name any of them like got in my car because we were a car pool and I used to drive my mom's car for the carpool we would switch off like one kid would take home on Tuesday the next kid and it just so happened that we all lived in the same neighbor or proximate yeah prox yeah. yeah because it was a public high school so kids came from all over Southern California I mean we had kids that took the bus from San Diego and oh it's oh, wow. a really competitive high school to get into because it was a free top tier education right and so we lived in the San Gabriel Valley so when I say we lived in the same neighborhood we lived in the same county uh, I mean LA County anyway I digress but um yeah he got in my car and he just like rubbed his stinky armpits all over the back of my mom's seats Ew. and I thought oh, you're fucking disgusting like that's disgusting but he he went on to become one of my best friends he's so funny <laughs> and, I mean we don't know each other anymore I'm not in contact with any of these boys anymore but that's like stuff like that would stick in my mind where I was like yeah. that is totally something Dirty Dan would do and um, <laughs> but it was actually another boy it was his really good friend I mean that's not in the book but that's an example of how I and then the character of Cello is again a composite of three different girls I knew just for yeah. for yeah. readers yeah. who yes. haven't oh, read right. the book sorry would you explain very quickly sure who the main character Nikki sure. Darling which Eric already said is a high school student in 90s LA who are who's cello? Who's Dan? Okay, thanks for doing that. Yeah, <laughs> and I babble, and I will literally talk for Evs. Um, okay, so the main character, the protagonist, is Nikki. She is sixteen, and she's in the musical theater department. Mm -hmm. And she has recently she's leaving one friendship with a friend named Sarah, who she's known since childhood is in her actual small like community neighborhood, and she's becoming friends with these sort of punk kids, Dan Cello, and I guess. Jess, who's kind of on the fringes, but the main characters, and then an independent friendship with another kid who's not in this group named Mike, who's a queer kid that she's absolutely in love with. And that character is more specifically based on one person than any of the other characters. And that person knows, because I was like, do you mind if I write a story about you? Because you're going to read this thing and be like, fuck you, bitch. But <laughs> is, is that not really, not, I is that the response you got? When you did talk to people about potentially being in the book? No, because no one's like in the book. Uh -huh. They're okay. all like make-believe people. Right. right. Um, Nikki, I wanted to ask you um, 
First of all, I wanted to say that this is Kate uh, speaking, and um, oh, yeah. it's such an honor. We used to run a uh, reading series together, so it's it's really exciting to have you here on the I show for you. your own book. <laughs> like I said, play it cool. <laughs> don't, don't exploit our friendship too Sorry. much. But um, anyways, uh, I was wondering, San Gabriel Valley is such a specific, I have a feeling of it being this really specific place with a lot of specific details that come up in the book. And part of Los Angeles, but also like a lot of mm. suburban settings in Los Angeles, completely separate. So I was curious what details about play, place is a really driving factor of the book. But I was curious in particular about the San Gabriel Valley, what details you wanted to get across about it the most and, and kind of how you see the, the setting of your novel affecting the characters. That's a great question. Yeah, I definitely wanted the San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles to be a character, but they're separate characters for sure. Because um, you're right, I grew up in Pasadena and I went to elementary school in South Pasadena. And then I went my, went to my first year of high school in Alhambra and all Catholic schools. And to me, the San Gabriel Valley was, also my father grew up in the San Gabriel Valley and he went to a public high school in San Gabriel. And I wanted to capture for me personally how... Growing up, I grew up at the tail end of like 1960s and 70s white flight. So when I was a child growing up in San Gabriel Valley, it had just experienced a huge transition in terms of Asian American and Latino immigration coming into the San Gabriel Valley. And for me, that's what San Gabriel Valley always looked like. Mm. And that's how I experienced it growing up. And it felt very, I mean, it was comfortable. It was normal. It was like my familiar. And as I grew, I began to realize that, you know, the noodle planet we ate at was in an old Bob's Big Boy, right? <laughs> and so I started to sort of look around and be like, oh, these things look sort of, it had a really unique landscape because of things like that, right? Like I grew up eating pho in an old Bob's Big Boy. Yeah. But it's such a specific and unique Southern California experience and especially specific to the San Gabriel Valley in the early 90s. You know what I mean? And um, we they had like a hollow, hollow bar. But my dad used to go there and get like chili fries. You know what I mean? But we still were eating in the same restaurant. It just was, you know, had changed ownership or whatever. And I knew as a kid that the place was special. There was the goodies that we used to eat at on Easter morning. It's this restaurant that's not open anymore. And it had been built in the, I believe, the 50s or the early 60s. It had this really cool mid-century modern kind of design. And yeah, I the people that went to eat there were the people in the community, you know. And um, it just felt like a place and a time specific, especially now with like I say, I think the internet and Instagram. There's this mm. whole like foodie thing that's happening <laughs> right. where people are like going to the San Gabriel Valley and like getting dumplings and blah blah blah. But there was a time when that you know pre Jonathan Gold really that that wasn't. It was just a place that people lived and people hung out and uh, ate. And- it also seems so removed. I think there's a line in your book that references, you know, the place that the larger Los Angeles has on the teenagers in your book, that they're seeing themselves, they're seeing an image of themselves reproduced, but it has nothing to do with them, but it's still the namesake of the place that they live. So it's kind of, there's a confusion. That time, especially the bridge between well, for me, and 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 Los Angeles proper and this whole other world was probably more extreme even than now. 
And for me, I kind of think of myself as being someone who perhaps is from like the East Coast version of New Jersey, right? So by the time I got, like, (laughs) I only knew my community until I got to high school and friends got cars and I got cars or I was old enough or brave enough to get on the bus and go into Hollywood. And so that started happening for me around 14 or 15. I got a fake ID because I'm from LA, as I'm sure you can. Someone like you to me, your growing up experience seems extremely cool to me because I know, you know, you would, you're right off a of sunset, you know, but I had to like get on a bus to do that. And that was super wild to me. I like going to Melrose and that's when I really started also simultaneously to get into old movies. So we're, mm. I was learning about the city as I was seeing, seeing the city depicted in old films. Like I remember I saw Rebel Without a Cause, I think like freshman or sophomore year, and then going to the Griffith Observatory for the first time and being like, whoa, you know? But then also just like growing up watching Beverly Hills 90210. And just because I lived in the San Gabriel Valley and I didn't go to LA all the time didn't mean I didn't go to LA at all. Like if we went to go see like something play downtown at the Dorothy Chandler, like we'd drive into LA or my mom was a florist, so we'd go to the flower market. Or if for whatever reason we had business on the West side, you know, we'd come down here to Hollywood and, you know, I'd be like, "Mm," you know. You know, as you're talking about these kind of memories from your childhood, which get baked into the narrative, I'm wondering about nostalgia in this. Now, now there's two kinds of nostalgia. I was thinking about this a lot this week because I had a student who wrote a piece about that Charlie XCX and Troy Chavon single now, 1999, which thinks about the 90s, but totally papers over like the actual problems, you know, the homophobia, all the other stuff that came along with that time. And your book doesn't really do, like, you know, you're you're telling a real life, in a sense, from that time. But I wonder what that return meant for you as a writer in terms of nostalgia or if it helped you to see that period in your life differently. So I started writing this book in 2013, and I, I, I came off of another novel that—so this is my third— novel, the first one that's ever been published. Okay. And I was writing another novel about Demon Harrison Ford. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> but um, that novel was also particularly steeped in nostalgia because it happened in the 70s and it took place in Hollywood specifically. And my novel before that was about the first woman to ever jump off the Hollywood sign peg and whistle. And um, Robert, I forget his last name, Wadlow, the tallest man ever. And they like, anyway, and that was about Hollywood in the 1920s. And around the time I started this, like my works and letters got archived at the UCLA Chicano Research Center. And I started, I had the opportunity to go through all my stuff. And I'm getting, I'm circling back to your question. And looking at the stuff made me realize that I had written these two novels about the city, this is also partly to your first question about using my own name, about mm. these other people I completely pulled out of the air. I'd read about historical figures. I'm also like very deep into the history of the city. Mm-hmm. I should mention I'm a third generation Angelino. So I've always felt like super connected to the place. And I thought, well, what the hell? I'm just going to write about a story that I know, you know, because I had sent the book out to different agents, these other books out to different agents and stuff, and they didn't get the response that this book got. And, you know, part of it is like, throwing the darts and seeing what will hit, you know? And I thought, oh, well, maybe if I write about an experience I know more intimately, people will connect with that. So nostalgia, I feel like I've been steeped in nostalgia for 10 years, you know? Um, (laughs) And then before that, I was in New York where nostalgia was like a word in the dictionary I didn't read very often. You know, I was like living very much like in that moment. Do I address like homophobia? 
phobia? No, what I mean stuff? more is like, did did writing about that time, did it give you different purchase on your own experience of that period? Hmm. I feel really lucky to have had the experience I had in high school and to have gone mm. to the high school that I that I went to because, for instance, despite what the media said a few years ago, we actually had the first prom queen who was a drag queen. And, you know, there were <laughs> queer kids on the cover of my yearbook. And to be queer in high school was not unusual. And, um, in fact, some kids really promoted their their identity because it, you know, we didn't have cheerleaders. We didn't, you know, I was part of Mecha. There was, like, really strong, like, Chicano, like, uh, youth movement at the high school. And so this is kind of like a snotty response, but I've not ever felt like I've had to revisit those things. Like mm, my interesting. politics on those issues have been pretty solid since then. Like yeah. I've not really changed my views on a lot of things. I've not come back to stuff and been like, I mean, maybe my personal, like, you know, intimate one-on-one relationships, I should change how I talk to people or I should address like, you know, maybe I'm a little bossy or controlling, but like my identity politics and like how I deal with other people, I've not really thought about that stuff or my ideas about those things haven't changed a whole lot, if I'm understanding your question. Something I wondered about in the book and that kind of struck me just as I was reading the novel and then thinking about teen narratives in general is that they usually center on confusion that, you know, that teenage stories are ones where people are struggling, they don't understand things, they don't understand themselves, their place in the world. But with your book, as I was thinking about it, I realized that it's not that that misunderstanding or confusion is particular to being a teenager and then clears up later. I think it's that that's when the large questions start and that they don't really stop. As you get older, maybe for some people, but not for myself, something in your book... I was wondering, basically, as you're speaking of nostalgia, but not really nostalgia, I guess, as you're looking back in the book and trying to write about problems you had or that your characters had when they were younger, um, how did you choose what to address? And mm. and how did you... Because I know identity, for instance, is a, is a very large part of this book, subtly intoned, but it's still there. I guess I'm wondering... You know, through a guise of you now as a grown-up person, what did you want to write about in particular for your characters? And and how does that kind of circle back to things you care about now, not just teenage concerns? Yes, yes. So it's going to be really hard to answer this question without blowing the big reveal at the end. Well, you don't have to. But <laughs> no, or, no, or you can no, if you want. No, I mean but. I I want to answer your question, but I mean I think you guys all know the thing at the end, the reason why she's all gloomy and depressed. So, I really wanted there to be um two- But is that really the only reason that she's depressed? No, that's not the only No, it's not the only reason, yeah. but it's like, you know, it's like one of the reasons perhaps that she's like feels emotionally connected to this girl Claire. Or that um, one of the things I wanted to have in the book continuously was like the um, the mirroring of the sh- like the the silence that surrounds just sort of trauma and mm. and all young people, but specifically women, where they're sort of told that they can't speak about things that have happened to them. And and part of her trauma is that she's been silenced. Well, no one's told her not to talk about what's happened, but no one's given her an opportunity to talk about yeah. it either. Like with the counselor, it's sort of this like 
I really wanted to show that, like, the adults in her life, with the exception of the teacher who just sees a spark of intellect, but, like, the people who are supposed to be reaching out to her in that sort of way, specifically the counselor, they dance around it in this idea that they're doing their job so they can say, I did my job without actually investigating what's actually going on. And um, I also, with the opening, with the with the Gloria and Zildua, there are a lot of reasons why I picked the title, but the I want it, I think, I see, now I'm glad I brought my book. So, like, this yeah. is one of it's the... A- um, the epigraphs that opens the book by Gloria Enzaldúa. Uh, it was only there at the interface that we could see each other, see we wanted to touch. I wished I could become pulsing color, pure sound, bodiless as she. And I chose that for two reasons. And also the title Fade Into You holds hands with that. Um, I wanted to address the the desire for this character to connect with a sister that she doesn't know and has lost but is not able to communicate with. And there's a point in the book where she says, I keep holding up my hands to like TV and the air and the radio and songs trying to feel her, but I feel her around me, but I don't know what she's trying to tell me. And um, also Fade Into You is, you know, this is a sister who had sort of a tragic end and her little sister that she never really got a chance to know, but also silenced when she jumped out the window. She's fading into her, right? She's both fading into the older sister who has lost her life, but also fading into every girl who has sort of felt silenced by everything that's happening around her in society. Because I don't know for the two of you, but for me, like 13 and 14 were extremely confusing and traumatizing without anything on top of it. Just like like seeing how men look at you in restaurants suddenly, you know, like being aware that you know, billboards of women are sexualized women who don't look that different from you do or the way that your father might talk to a a waitress or the way that, you know, you see a man talk to his daughter in a movie theater. Like all of this stuff becomes like really bright and loud. It takes a toll on you. And then not to mention that you're in high school and then there's boys and God forbid you have breasts or you don't have breasts or you're pretty or you're not pretty or you have whatever fucking thing. You know what I mean? Like if, you know, there's you're going your body becomes like a a site of observation at a point when you are like the most desperate to not be a point of observation and so i wanted with the Ansel Dua there that she wanted to become in some way bodiless but she also wanted to become in some way she wants both to be invisible and seen at the same she wants to be seen but she doesn't want to be known I wanted to write about that. So that was one of the things about like being in the physical body of a young woman. And then also I wanted to talk about these sort of like habits that we inherit from our parents. The one sister who is still living is like always in a, an abusive relationship. And this, uh, the, the Dan character says, is like forever chasing unavailable men, you know. And he says, I don't want to see you chase unavailable men for the next 20 years and sort of like a little foreshadowing to the fact that that's he's kind of saying what she's gonna you know that's like kind of her path and then the two sisters share trauma but it's kind of expressed in different ways I actually wanted to add since something I wonder about with many writers who write about trauma how did you approach it and also how did you approach sort of re-entering that vulnerable space because you know thinking about being again, 13 or 14, at the bare minimum, the last thing I want to do is re-enter that 
mind and body, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, I'm so glad. I'm, I'm glad to have left 26 behind. You know, I'm just <laughs> happy to be here. <laughs> right, right, same. Um, I, I, yeah. So how do, how do you manage sort of going, going back into that and re-inhabiting that state, really, right? Because you have to convey it to your reader. You have to write about it. Yeah, so I very specifically picked the age 16 for a reason because like 13 for me was like what you just described. Like it was like if someone touched my body, it was like I just everything. It was like so everything, like the rain, like a song, everything felt so much more than it really was. It just felt so intense um, Mm -hmm. that I wanted to pick 16 because the other thing is this isn't a book of firsts like she doesn't smoke pot for the first time in this book she doesn't drink for the first time in this book she's already got a fake id she's already got cool clothes she already smokes cigarettes so this isn't someone who's like sliding into a new identity this is someone who's kind of been like getting used to checking out for a year or two now so this is like for me this is a character who has found a way to exist outside of that sort of pain that you just Mm. described. And I very specifically didn't want her to lose her virginity in this book. I didn't want you to see her smoke a cigarette for the first time. I didn't want you to see her in an alley talking to someone like, here's $50, go get me a fake ID. Like she's already kind of mastered. Like none of these things that she sees are new to her. Mm. You know, she's familiar. So we meet her at a place where she's decided to just hang out and not care. Mm-hmm. And she's now being noticed for doing that and slightly starting to get hassled because of it, but not hassled enough that anything's actually changing. Something else that I was wondering um, was when you thought about the story in this book, did you, and I don't know how you would have avoided doing this, but think about teenagers growing up now and what the difference must mm. be like. Or do you have teenagers <laughs> that are close to you that you've observed and sort of done a contrast with? Yeah, so I did not, but halfway into writing this book, I started the program at USC. And part of my package or my fellowship, pardon me, is that I teach in exchange for my tuition. Mm-hmm. So I've been teaching freshman English since 2014. And the majority of my students are between the age of 18 and 20. And even though they're not exactly 16, oh boy, they are teenagers. And that has been like a crash course. And like one that I'm no longer like the person in this book, no matter how much I try to defy that by dressing the way that I do. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, that there is just so much happening right now for them in a way that I don't feel like really was for us. Um, I'm 38. And when I was a kid, like if you wanted to know about an album, you got a mixtape that someone made yeah. you. And there was like a nausea song on it. And then you went to the record store to look for it. But it was like, it was like kind of like a treasure hunt. Like you had to go into the actual physical world to find something. I mean, it wasn't so difficult, you know. Um, Like I remember the big technological advancement of my high school experience was that I got my own line, right? Or Star 69, if someone called you, you would like hit Star 69. And then, you know, REM has that song. And, um... Just like the speed with which they get information is so alarming to me. And um, though that was also right at a time when you had like AOL 
and you suddenly could go into chat rooms. So it was like this very, like the 90s is this fascinating, like liminal time where you have access to more information, like kind of these murky online communities, but it doesn't saturate your every waking life. And I'm going to tag back on your original question about nostalgia, because I think I am someone who has always been deeply with one foot in a past that I never lived through. Like I've always been into the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, all the way up to the 70s. Mm. Like I used to listen to Flashback Lunch. Like I was deeply committed to records and bell bottoms and like, you know, calling joints dubs. And like, I just really wanted to like embody (laughs) this other, because part of the city for me that was so cool was that it had this like non-static history. Like you could go to the Ambassador Hotel and now you can't, you know what I mean? So it was like, catch it before it's gone. And so even when that stuff was happening, I made a conscious decision not to participate in it. Like I never went Uh, in a chat room because I was like really deeply committed to like, you know, vinyl. A different path. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like, like even then, you know what I mean? And, you know, we were playing like, we had computer class, you know, and we did Oregon Trail, you know. Oh yeah, I remember that. But I really, even then I had friends who were like, oh, I'm in a chat room. And I was like, meh. <laughs> Not interested. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a passing phase. I remember when the Sandra Bullock movie The Net came out, I was like, uh, I'm always complaining about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what is on that note, yeah. what is the latest thing that you've been complaining about? You know, you caught me in a good month. My book came out today. I mean, so that's a depressing answer. The it things is. that well, I've been complaining about, I think, are the um, the sort of state of continual violence that we live in, yeah. uh, racism, misogyny, um, environmental degradation, climate change, you know, the president of the United States, the continual use of the word America to describe the United States because America is is a continent and the yeah. United States is a country and there are people living here before the United States. And um, it continues to be a beautiful place if we make a conscious effort to save and protect it but you know um all the same stuff that everyone i feel like is complaining i feel like it's really hard right now specifically for all people of all ages to be on this planet mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> with that, <laughs> note, with that ominous Sorry. note. I love uh, the new Ariana Grande song. Thank you, next. <laughs> a younger friend pointed it out to me, and I was like, what is this? And now I know what all the memes are, and I feel excited about that, that I'm like, I know what this meme means. Oh, I have not seen any of the memes. Okay. There's something to being young. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, happy, cheers to all the teenagers yeah. out there. Happy to still be yeah. here. All right. Thanks, Thank Nikki. you so much, Nikki, for joining us. We've been speaking with Nikki Darling, author of Fade Into You, out now from Feminist Press. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's fundraising season at LARB, and we hope we can count on your support. We know that you love great literature as much as we do. That's why LARB works with both prominent emerging authors to bring you the best new essays, reviews, and interviews on literature, art, politics, and everything in between. To support more great new writing and thought, please consider making a donation this holiday season to the Los Angeles Review of Books. As a nonprofit organization, we depend on the support of listeners and readers like you. And there's never been a better time to donate. 
a generous anonymous donor has committed to matching up to $100,000 in donations made between now and midnight December 31st. So please, if you can, consider making a donation and a contribution to support the great writing, the great shows, the great events that the Los Angeles Review of Books puts on. We are so grateful for readers and listeners like you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 